0: Uh, specifically looking at mark chapter 1 verses 14 through 20 so if you have a Bible go ahead and turn to mark 1 we'll spend our whole morning there maybe took it turning to a couple other spots as well mark chapter 1 14 to 20 and we're going to begin as we usually do by reading the word of God just reading those verses and as we read God's word let's stand together if you're able to mark chapter 1 verses 14. Through 20. Hear the word of God. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon. "'Casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. "'And Jesus said to them, "'Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. "'And immediately they left their nets and followed him. "'And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee, "'and John his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. "'And immediately he called them, And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. You can be seated. You know, uh, three weeks ago today, three weeks ago today, uh, the Super Bowl was played. And uh, it's, uh, of course, before a big game like that, a lot of preparation goes into it by the two teams that are involved. In this case, the Baltimore Ravens and the San Francisco 49ers. But the preparation that they put into the Super Bowl seems to pale in comparison to the preparation the rest of the nation puts in to this football game. You'd think it was something much more important than a football game happening, right? Because advertising and companies are spending $3 million or more for a 30-second advertisement, so they're preparing for this day by spending... A ton of time and money developing just the perfect advertisement that will catch people's attention. And, and people are, you can get coverage of the Super Bowl anywhere. I mean, even if you just turn on the normal news, they'll be talking about the Super Bowl, let alone turning on ESPN or turning on the NFL Network, which gives you 24-hour coverage of what's going on in the NFL. It's it's this huge event in our culture, and we even get to hear, I mean, people ask you, where are you going to watch the game? They just assume you're going to be watching the game. And so, a lot of preparation goes into it. Grocery stores love the Super Bowl, because we love food, and somehow we've made this connection between guys hitting each other and us eating food, and somehow that goes really well together. And so, we go nuts and spend, reportedly a billion dollars on food for the Super Bowl, $145 million alone on tortilla chips, and $184 million on potato chips. Okay, So we get ourselves prepared for this big event. But I don't know about you, for me, when the Super Bowl actually starts, it's kind of anticlimactic. Like it's all this building up to this big event that's going to happen, But I don't even know if I've seen, I've watched the Super Bowl, at least parts of it, every year for I don't know how many years in a row. But I don't know that I've ever even seen the kickoff for the last few years. Because I'm too busy, we're gathered together, so I'm talking to other people. Or I'm putting something in my mouth that I just dipped in something else, or something wrapped in bacon, and I'm putting that in my mouth. And that's how, and, and then all of a sudden, oh... I guess there's a football game going on. And then you catch parts of it here and there, maybe tune in even more during the advertisements. But it's kind of anticlimactic for all that goes into preparing for this big event. We're in the Gospel of Mark. And we've been talking about how all of human history and all of the Old Testament is leading up to Jesus The the proclamation, Mark says it's about the proclamation of the good news of Jesus who is the Christ, the long-awaited for Messiah, the Son of God, He is here. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, we've seen that it's anything but anticlimactic. John the Baptist comes and he prepares the way, and then Jesus' authority is established as He enters into the water of baptism, and He is revealed as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And, and then His authority is further established, and he, he not only hears from His Father, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then He also hears from and sees the Holy Spirit descend into Him. And so His authority is established in the water, and then He moves immediately, last week we looked at, into the wilderness, where His authority is established over Satan. And so it has not yet been at all anticlimactic. And now, as Jesus today in the passage that we're looking at actually starts His public ministry, it's still not anticlimactic. We're still building up. And so it begins, interestingly, with Jesus preaching. He's been in the water, He's been in the wilderness, and now He's going to preach. I'm really looking forward. I've been uh, praying. I pray every week. For us all, as we gather together to hear God's word, that God would actually do something in us through it. Uh, but even more this week, um, I, I, I'm come to this uh, very expectant because what Jesus calls us to is something incredibly radical here, and I want us to notice that this week, and I want God to come and do something in us, and so. Uh, I can't accomplish that. That's why we prayed before, uh, as we prayed earlier, and prayed right before, um, I, right when I got up here as well, praying that God would come and do something. And I continue to pray um, throughout this week that God would use this. And so I hope that you have an open heart, that your heart is good soil as the Word of God is planted this morning. Pray that you just put off all distractions and you hear uh, the Word of God and, and do something as a result. We're going to look. There's an outline in your bulletin uh, that might be helpful for you to take notes. I realize that there's not a lot of space, so you might need to write really little. But if there's something that God brings to your mind that you want to write down to remember later, it's a great space to do that. It also gives you an outline of where we're headed this morning. First thing that happens. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. We'll not spend a lot of time there. But I want us to notice a couple things about how Jesus begins His public ministry. It says it was after John was arrested, this is verse 14, after John was arrested, now the spotlight, which was only on John for a small amount of time, and he always wanted it to be on Jesus anyway, and now the spotlight is shifting fully onto Jesus. John has been arrested, and now it says that Jesus came in to Galilee. Notice where Jesus is showing up, He could have shown up in Jerusalem, where it's kind of like the hub of everything. Jesus didn't start his ministry in Jerusalem. He came to the Galilean countryside. That's where he comes. And he is doing what? Proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus begins his public ministry by preaching. We live in a culture where preaching is kind of like a, eh, take it or leave it. Go to a lot of churches, they'll do it for about 10 minutes maybe, um, and do a bunch of other stuff. Um, but Jesus, the primary thing that one of the later he'll even say something, but Jesus, one of the primary things he has come for, is to teach and to preach. And so he comes, and the first thing he does as a as God um, is he decides he's going to proclaim the gospel, the good news of God. And here's what he says. I want you to notice how urgent the message is. Here's what he says. Verse 15. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand those are urgency kind of words the time is fulfilled that means the time is now that all of this that we've all been waiting for for so long it's finally here much unlike the Super Bowl where where it just kind of all of a sudden starts and you don't even know that it just started Jesus is saying no all that everybody's been preparing for since the beginning of time it is fulfilled that's a bold statement that Jesus is making As he comes onto the scene, he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's like, it's right here. You can reach out and touch it, even literally, um, as Jesus comes. So it's an urgent message that he begins with, and he has the authority to claim that kind of urgent message. And then, I want you to notice the content of the message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That means God's kingship, his reign over his people. And here's the message. It's something we've heard before. Very simple. Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. A message of repentance and faith. You're going to hear it as you read the rest of the New Testament. You'll hear that over and over again. As you go through the book of Acts, the message as people say, Peter, thank you for that message. What are we going to do? He says, repent and believe. Repent and believe is the message we hear all throughout Scripture. We saw it already in verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus' message, John's message, message of the Old Testament prophets, all very similar. Repent and have faith in God. Turn back to God. Turn away from sin. Repent and believe want a little grammar, a little grammar. I'll give you a little grammar, a little grammar here. Um, Repent and believe are in the present imperative, which means that they're not things that you do one time and then they're done. It's not something in the past. They are something that you do that has an ongoing effect that you continue to do. Repenting is not something you did one day back when you first became a believer and then you believed and that was it. That's something in your past. No, as Christians, we repent and we believe. That's a constant daily thing that we're doing. Repenting and believing. But what is repentance? When we talked about it in verse 4, I never really described it. Repentance is this. Repentance is a radical change in your mind and in your heart that results in a change of direction in your life. Okay? Repentance is a radical change of your mind and of your heart that results in a change of direction in your life. Okay? So that is this. For example, let's say that you are stressed out. And for comfort in your life, when you need comfort, you turn to food. That's the way a lot of people operate, right? I need comfort, I've had a stressful day, I've had a really good day. We celebrate with food, we comfort ourselves with food, we turn to food. I need affirmation. Maybe in your life you feel this need for affirmation. And a lot of times what we turn to is we turn to buying stuff. So shopping becomes how we fix our need for affirmation. Repentance looks like we say, you know what, I am stressed out and it has been a bad day. I don't need to turn to food. I need to turn to Jesus right now. That's, that's who I need to turn to. So it's changing your mind about what you most need. Okay, that, that I don't need to go buy something to make myself feel significant. I need to turn to Jesus who says I am significant. That's where I get that. So that's that's repentance. You change your mind and it shifts the way that you think and the way that you do your life. So Jesus is preaching this message of repentance and belief in the gospel and then he does this look at verses 16 to 20 this is where we're going to spend most of our time i want to first just read verse 16 okay we're going to look at the identity of these disciples who are not yet disciples right now they're just fishermen look at this in verse 16 passing alongside the sea of galilee he saw simon and andrew the brother of simon casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen Okay, a couple of notes. I want you to notice this. First of all, uh, just so you get a picture of the setting, the Sea of Galilee, a beautiful area, I'm um, actually way below sea level. On one side, mountains, and on the other side, more sloping hills. The lake itself is about seven miles wide and 13 miles long. So a relatively large lake, beautiful, and these men are here fishing. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. When we think of fishing in our culture, fishing is, especially if you live in Iowa, not a way of life. Um, no, nobody like, You don't run into people at Hy-Vee like, what do you do? I fish. Oh, oh really? How's that going for you? Like, where's the, where's, we, we don't make it a way of life, right, in Iowa. We're, we understand being centered on an industry or on agriculture here. Um, between all of the, I mean, if you just think of what we have in this town and where a lot of people are employed, between Cargill and Iowa Select Farms and Christensen Farms and all the different, and then all the small businesses and small farms, we're a very agriculturally centered community. And they were as well, but it looked a lot different than us. Their people were not eating pork chops, hamburgers, and bacon. Okay? They weren't really into that. The staple food in this region at this time was fish. That's what they ate. And the Sea of Galilee was a hub for fishing. The fish that were caught at the Sea of Galilee would be exported as far away as Egypt. So this was, if you wanted to survive in this market, you had to be a pretty good fisherman. It's not like you just fished as a hobby. You had to pretty much commit your life to fishing. And you had to be a skilled fisherman if you wanted to make it in this competitive environment, right? And so that's the kind of world that these guys are living in. And you get a sense that these guys are not just out, you know, this is not just their hobby. This is, this is their livelihood. They are supporting their family because people are buying their fish. And if they stop fishing, they don't have, like, Social Security or anything like that, that's going to, like, or, or any sort of welfare program that's going to take care of them. They fish for their livelihood, and they obviously did pretty well at it. If you look at verse 20, just really quick, it says, um, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. They were doing well enough that they had hired hands to help them with their fishing. So these guys are probably not just scraping by, they're probably doing pretty well. They have found their identity in fishing. It's probably been a family business that's been passed down from generation to generation. It's kind of like, well, yeah, I fish. I mean, my dad fished. My grandpa fished. I fish. My kids are going to fish. That's what we do. And that's what they're doing when Jesus walks along. They are casting their nets into the sea for they were fishermen. That's what fishermen do. But then, actually, hold on. I want us to think a little bit about um, our identity, how easy it is for our identity and our security to be tied into what we do a- and how financially secure what we do is making us. You know what I'm talking about? I, I read a story this week. I'm going to read a little portion of it to you. I read a story on ESPN.com. Michael Jordan's turning 50 or turn 50. I don't even know when it happened. Okay. Uh, Michael Jordan played basketball. Um, if you weren't aware, he was pretty good. Um, And in that story, on ESPN.com, the the author of that story, not a Christian, um, and Michael Jordan, not a Christian, but he's interviewing Michael Jordan, and here's what this author said. Listen to this. About Michael, he says this, his self-esteem has always been, as he says, tied directly to the game. Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? For the past 10 years since retiring for the third time, he has been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions and distance. Interesting, isn't it? That that this guy is interviewing Michael Jordan, getting to know him, and it's very easy for him to see, and Michael admits to himself, my identity is tied to the game of basketball. If I'm not playing basketball, I feel adrift, like I don't have a clue what's going on. Basketball is my identity. And then I read a Christian blogger who was responding to this, because another question Michael asked, interesting that he would ask this, Michael asked, how can I find peace away from the game of basketball? Hmm. That's what he's trying to figure out in his life. And here's how this Christian blogger answers that question. He says, Michael, you never had peace. Triumph and fame, yes, but not peace. James Naismith invented a game that brought you a sense of purpose of value and of calm, but it was only that. It was just a sense, a counterfeit of the real thing. You will never find life outside the game for the same reason you never found life in it. It's not there. The peace you seek isn't available on a basketball court or a golf course. But it's on a little hill outside Jerusalem. And there, Yahweh incarnate, hung in the place of sinners, want to be Yahwehs like you and like me. You've gained the world and you found it lacking, Mike. Don't lose your soul. None of us. I, I haven't seen any of you play, but I'm pretty sure. I've seen a couple of you play, I guess. None of you got skills like Michael Jordan, okay? You don't. And so you don't have to worry about basketball becoming your idol. You don't have to worry about holding on too tightly to basketball. Like anybody here, really worried about that? You know, I'm like, like, well, I'm just worried basketball is going to become my idol, so I just don't play, right? Yeah, right. You don't play because you're not in shape and you'd break something. I know it. Um, but, but most of us don't have to worry about that. But a lot of us do find our identity and have a pretty tight grip on a lot of other things that make us feel really secure that we can't imagine letting go of. We find our identity in our family. That we find our identity in our work. In our family, and our work, And basketball, they're not evil things. But what I fear is that we have taken good things like those things and turned them into God things. And that's a bad thing. Right? And because of that, I think we are scared and we have such a tight grip on those things that it makes us hard to be completely obedient to God and what He calls us to. Because we've got such a tight grip on those things and we can't imagine life without that. And so, because we're holding on so tightly to that, we can't totally hold on to what God is calling us to. And so, let me read verse 17. Listen to what Jesus does. Jesus shows up as they were just fishing. That's what they always did. Verse 17, And Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. First thing I want us to notice is that Jesus is initiating. What were these guys doing? Fishing. What had they done the day before? Fishing. What did they do the day before that? Fishing. They were fishermen and they fished. That's what they did. They were just doing what they always did. And in the midst of that, by God's grace, Jesus shows up. Right where they were at. And Jesus shows up. And he, I mean, thankfully, aren't you grateful that God does that? That God pursues us while we were yet sinners? That God comes after us? Because I know in my heart that I was not pursuing God. Romans 3 says, no one understands. No one seeks God. That's not our natural bent. Our natural bent is towards our sin and we're enslaved to that until by God's grace, Jesus comes after us. Praise God that we have a God who initiates that Abraham wasn't doing just the the right things to please God so that God came after Abraham, but God just came after Abraham. And God is always choosing people like fishermen. Like if you're thinking, Jesus, all the places you could have gone to find some disciples, why did you choose fishermen? Remember when we went over Acts 4, people called these guys uneducated common men. Why would Jesus pick those guys? I mean, Jesus picked Leah over Rachel and Jacob over Esau, and Moses to be the spokesperson who couldn't speak very well. And and he picked prophets who were like, not me. And he picked Saul, who was all about just bent on killing Christians and hating Gentiles, to becoming a Christian and winning Gentiles to Christ. That he would pick somebody like me. I don't It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but if you want to make some sense of it, you could turn really quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Why, you ask, would God show up and initiate a relationship with these guys who were just casting their nets because they were fishermen? That's what they did. Why did Jesus show up and initiate a relationship with these guys? Look at Paul who gets this because he used to be Saul. In verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, says, "...for consider your calling, brothers." And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, it, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. These disciples didn't impress Jesus. And Jesus didn't come to these disciples, and he didn't say to them, All right, pop quiz time, disciples. I got a little Torah pop quiz. We're going to see how well you know the Pentateuch. And then he, he said, quote Leviticus 14.12 right now, go. He didn't do that. Right? Jesus didn't do that. He didn't give them a Torah pop quiz. He didn't say, give me your resume, send in some references, I want to know about you. Jesus walks up to these fishermen and makes a command. He just makes a command. I want us to notice two things about the command that he makes. It's two words. I want us to look at both of those words because I think, especially if you've taught little kids Sunday school, you've gone over the story so many times that I think we kind of lose what's going on here. The first word in the command that Jesus makes is follow. Okay, so it was command, two words. First word, follow. Again, some basic stuff, but follow is a verb. That means it's an action. It implies that you're doing something. We in our culture, following has become kind of a passive kind of thing. And Twitter is partly to blame for that, because if you have, how many people here have a Twitter account? Anybody, got some people with a Twitter account, okay? If you aren't aware of what Twitter is, um, you'll you'll be um, asked by businesses and a number of other people to follow us on Twitter. What that means is that whoever is in charge of that Twitter account will give you, in 140 characters or less, so very short, will give you some sort of statement. And to follow somebody on Twitter simply means you say, yes, I want to follow you. And then when they make a statement, you can choose to read or not read that in the comfort of your recliner, read it right on your phone, and that's it. And you just followed somebody on Twitter. That's all it takes. You just read something and sit there passively. But when Jesus makes the command, follow, He means something much more urgent and much more costly than we think. Jesus is calling them to do something. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus is going to take these people whose identity and security and livelihood and everything was all wrapped up in fishing. And He says, I'm going to change your job. I'm going to change your identity. Whatever it used to be, your source of identity and life and security, I'm going to give you a new life and identity and security. He he gives them that. He will make them become fishers of men. You know what disciples do? They make disciples. That's just implied in the call that Jesus has to follow me. Because here's what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Disciples make disciples. So a question for you would be, are you making disciples? That's what disciples do. I don't really think it's optional. I'm praying and working through and going to be talking to the elders about an idea where I would love to see our whole church body be committed to um, getting a better understanding of what it means to be a disciple who makes disciples. And so I'm thinking of, of maybe taking the whole church maybe and, and organizing it probably so it happens at different times throughout the year whenever you're not busy, but committing to six weeks, to being a part of a small group, where for that six weeks you're together with a small group of people learning what it means to be a disciple who makes disciples. And then we can choose what to do after that, but, but then you just make a commitment for six weeks. Um, and I would love to see the whole church be all about that. More information on that when we get more information and stuff. But the second word of the command, follow is the first one. Second word of the command is this, me. We usually forget about this. We start thinking about fishing and following and nets and dropping and all this stuff, and we forget about the word me. You realize, don't you, that the one who makes the command makes all the difference in the world. Right? The one who makes the command makes all the difference in the world. That's why when Annika says to Isaiah, when she makes a command to her little brother in my house, Isaiah's command is, Annika, you're not in charge! Like that. It kind of sounds like that. Doesn't it, buddy? (laughs) Annika, you're not in charge! Because he's right. He's only three, but he's right. She does not have the authority to make that kind of command. The person who makes the command, who it is making the command, makes all the difference in the world. And so we need to recognize that as Jesus makes this command to the disciples, follow me, it's Jesus. The one we've been introduced to as the Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one who has authority over all things, including Satan. He is coming to them and He is saying, follow me. It's not just... Jeremy saying it? Because that wouldn't be someone that you would want to follow all the time. But it's Jesus coming to these people and saying, follow me. And at this point, don't you wonder, how much do they even know about Jesus? I mean, he just walked up on the seashore and you can read in in the other Gospels and and maybe kind of get some understanding of maybe they had heard of Jesus, maybe even had a little interaction. But all in all, they knew very little about Jesus. When Jesus comes to them and says, Follow me. And so he comes right up to them, and Mark anchors the call of Jesus on their life to follow me. He doesn't anchor that in the well-thought-out decision-making abilities of some fishermen. He anchors it in just the authority of Jesus. The authority of the one who says, follow me. We don't get to get an inside track to what the disciples are thinking. We just hear, follow me from Jesus, and we learn that they do it. I want us to look at uh, the rest of this, verses 18 through 20. Let's just look. Here's what it says. What did they do? Verses 18 through 20. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Well, that sounds really simple, doesn't it? Just Jesus says, follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. And they left everything and followed him. Again, Mark being very, very succinct. But I want us to think of what exactly they were leaving. Nets, okay, I I don't know what you paid for a net back in the day. I mean, they were leaving their nets, but they're leaving so much more than their nets, aren't they? They were leaving their family. They said they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat. You know that Jesus, when he starts his ministry, they're traveling for three years. Whatever family and security they had in their family, and again, we need to remember that their family was so much more central than it is here. You didn't move really away from your family. We move all over the place. We have families living everywhere now. But at this time, families always stayed kind of in one spot because that was your source of security. That was your social security, was your family, and these guys are leaving their family behind. They're leaving their hope of financial gain behind. Remember, how did they make their money? It's old fish. Well, they're not fishing anymore. They're just following Jesus. And notice, I want to. One thing I forgot to mention that when Jesus is calling them, he's doing something very abnormal in that culture. Rabbis would, people would leave things and follow rabbis, but that was usually on their own initiative. Jesus was doing something very abnormal as he walked up to people and chose them. That was not normal, okay? But they're responding to this call by leaving everything. Their security that they find in their family, the security that they find in their finances, the security that they find in their future. What's their future going to look like now? I Man, this, I, who knows? They probably had it all lined up, right? I'm gonna pass this off to my kid, he gets my net, he gets my boat, everything's gonna work out fine. Now, I don't know. And then even physical safety, that's another thing they leave behind. We don't find out about that. I want to give you a little sneak preview. If you looked in Mark chapter 8, 34 to 35, listen, as they get to know Jesus, as they follow Jesus, they learn more about Jesus. Some of you are new believers, you need to know that it's okay that you don't know everything. It's okay that you don't know much at all. Just be around people and ask a lot of questions. These guys got to be around Jesus, and as they were around Jesus, here's what Jesus said in in Mark chapter 8, 34-35. And calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Jesus is calling them later on to give up even their grip that they have on their own physical safety. He says you're going to be willing you're going to need to be willing to sacrifice that. Your family, your finances, your future, your physical safety, none of it is assured anymore. How are you with that? Give up your family. Jesus notice does provide them a new family. You notice that he's calling two sets of brothers. Okay, so they're, they're coming with part of their family, and that's good. And he calls them to a new family. And Jesus even says later in Mark chapter 3, we'll come across a spot where Jesus' brother and his mother are, are waiting outside. And they're like, hey, they, they can't even get in, Jesus. Can you let them in? And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Is it not those who are gathered around me who are hearing me? Jesus redefines the family. They're giving all that up, and they do some weird stuff. They choose faith over common sense. Jesus says, follow me, and what they're doing doesn't make any sense at all. Leaving their nets, leaving their father, leaving their hired servants, leaving it all behind and just following Jesus doesn't make a lot of sense. Immediately, though, they did it. They followed him. So we see in in the disciples a radical response of immediate obedience. They leave everything behind that gives them security and identity, and they choose to follow the One who at this point has promised them nothing. But based on His authority, they are willing to leave everything and follow Him. So I want you, as we close, to ask yourself some tough questions this week. There's some at the bottom of the sermon outline. Maybe you've used those in the past. Maybe you haven't. Maybe this week you start using them. I want you to ask those questions to yourself, in your family, in a small group that you're a part of, whatever. I want you to ask those questions. Because the command that Jesus makes to follow me, when Jesus says, follow me, you can't go half in. You understand that? The command that Jesus makes is urgent and costly and worth it. If you're going to follow Jesus' command to follow Me, you don't just kind of like step half in and say, Well, I'm going to just hold on to this fishing thing just in case. He says, follow Me, and they left everything and followed Him. I read this article by a guy named Barry Cooper, and he was right on because we live in a culture where we like to keep our options open because we have lots of options. And we like to keep our options open, don't we? We do. And here's what he said. I think I even have the quote up there so you can read it. Maybe. (laughs) We worship the God of open options. And He's killing us. He kills our relationships because He tells us it's better not to become too involved. He kills our service to others because He tells us it might be better to keep our weekends to ourselves. He kills our giving because He tells us that these are uncertain financial times and you never know when you might need that money. He kills our joy in Christ because He tells us it's better not to be thought of as too spiritual. What is most frightening of all about the God of open options is that you may not even know that you are worshiping Him because He pretends to be No God at all. We like to keep our options open. We like to to have that grip that we have on the family that God has given us, the finances that God has given us, the reputation that God has given us, the job that God has given us, and we think, no, there's no way I could let go of that. And here's what I've seen happen in this body. I have seen people take small and medium steps of obedience and sacrifice to Jesus. I've seen that happen, and praise God for that. There are some of you in here, and I don't know who gives what, but I assume that there are some of you in here who are tithing and maybe even giving more than 10% of your income, even when you feel like you don't have much. But you're giving generously, and that doesn't make a lot of sense to people outside. A financial planner would look at you and say, what are you thinking? Take care of yourself first, and after you've taken care of yourself, then give to others. I like that. That's good. I think we ought to be doing that. Some of you may have passed up an opportunity at work so that you can better serve your family or better serve your church. Praise God for giving you the courage to make that step of obedience. Some of our students gave up sleeping on their bed and slept on the floor and gave up their McDonald's money and put it in a thing and they're sending it to have an orphanage, another floor in an orphanage built in Haiti. What a great step of obedience to take. Some of you on a weekly basis, I'm just amazed. I come here on Wednesday night and, and all the people that are just serving their hearts out for the sake of the little kids at Awana. Some of you had, you know, just a, a long day at work. Some of you, I mean, there's, I think three, if I'm, if I'm right, I think three ladies who do daycare during the day. They spend their whole day wiping kids' noses and breaking up fights and dealing with feisty little kids. And then, like a half hour after the last kid leaves their house, they come and they serve and do the same thing in Awana. Praise God for giving many of you a desire to take steps of obedience that might not make a lot of sense to other people in the world. But here's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if God might be calling some or all of us, and we're trying to figure this out together as a family, I don't know what it is yet, but but what might God be calling you to as a larger step of obedience? That's going to require you to leave some things behind that you're holding on to probably a little too tightly. That You're going to leave that behind in order to be obedient and follow Jesus. I want us to think about that this week. We're going to close.